Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor William Renthal, who is Director of Research at the John Graham Headache Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an Assistant Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. His research focuses on the use of molecular genetics to develop therapeutic strategies for headache and pain. Welcome, Will. Thank, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your papers from 2019, Migraine-Associated Gene Expression in Cell Types of the Central and Peripheral Nervous System, uh, in which you say genome-wide association studies have implicated dozens of genes with migraine susceptibility, but it remains unclear in which nervous system cell types these genes are expressed. Um, migraine and pain, uh, headache, uh, this is a very complex disease, isn't it? Um, um, one of the reasons, obviously, is pain is a subjective experience, it's difficult to measure. Um, and so, so, you, so you have a study here. Uh, you want to talk a bit about the, the study? Yeah, so I, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I think this is a really important topic, and I'm, I'm really excited to share uh, our work with, with your community. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we face with, uh, in particular, migraine, but really uh, this could be extended to any pain disorder um, is, you know, where is this problem um, in your in your body? And if you think about the nervous system, I mean, the, this, this, and you may have seen these, you know, pictures of, of the nervous system starting with your brain and extends these, you know, ner- long axons down your spinal cord. And then you see these branches come off your spinal cord and go off into your fingers. And I mean, really where in this, in the, in this, uh, in this pathway, uh, does this pain exist and where, where, and in particular, and I'm interested in head pain, where, where does that exist? And, and it's a yeah. relatively similar uh, problem for both migraine and, uh, and, and pain in general. And when, um, when we think about migraine, uh, one of the things that's really stood out for decades now is that this is a highly genetic disorder. There are cases where we have uh, familial uh, causes of migraine, where there's really a, a one or maybe a few genes that are passed down from family member to family member that, 
that cause this uh, predisposition. But it turns out in, um, in most people, it's actually what we call polygenic disorder, meaning many genes are affected and many genes are associated with the disease. And each one of these genes or variants, that, as they're called, uh, adds a little bit of risk. And uh, it's really hard to know exactly where that risk is coming from. When you have a condition like, uh, like migraine that could potentially exist in many different places in the body. And so one of the things that, that my research has focused on is trying to figure out where, um, where, in, the, where in this nervous system migraine, uh, migraine actually comes from. And so we take, uh, we take large samples of, um, of, of, of patients who have either self-reported or physicians have diagnosed them with migraine um, and, uh, and look for variants that are more associated with, with, with migraine conditions compared to controls. And then um, and what actually what other groups have identified, and there's a large group called the International Headache Genetics Consortium, which has published some of the real seminal work in this, in this space, um, has, have identified over 100 variants that are significantly associated with, with, with migraine. And mm. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, oh, yeah. I, I just, it, it is fascinating. So yeah, when we think about migraine, we think about headache. Uh, but more generally, uh, what you're saying is it, it's polygenic. Um, we don't really know the origin of the problem, uh, and the pain could be starting somewhere and then migrating to some other place or something along those lines. Right. So when you think about it, is this hap is the is the susceptibility when a migraine attack occurs um, caused because of the peripheral nervous system, basically these pain fibers you think of when you you know slice your finger, it sends signals all the way up your um, arm to your spinal cord to your brain. Is it a problem with those kind of peripheral nerves that are in your face and head and around your brain? Or is it something that's happening inside your brainstem or brain itself? And with migraine, we really don't know the answer to that question. Um, and it's a very complicated problem, then the answer may be in some people it's one way and some other people it's another place, um, or everybody has kind of a different mix of all of these uh, relative components. And um, and so one of the, the outstanding, that's one of the major outstanding questions in the field. And we're hoping that the human genetic information that we, we now are able to accumulate across thousands, hundreds of thousands of even millions of people um, will guide us and tell us where to look. Um, or at least in the majority of, of, of patients, and so, so would you call it uh, would you call it sort of migraine spectrum then, Will? Um, so, so how is the how is the diagnosis done today? Well, the diagnosis is is actually quite um, quite old fashioned. In that, uh, I might get in trouble for saying that, but it is <laughs> it is decades old, and um, and it's really entirely based on symptoms. And so, if yeah. people have uh, you know severe headache that um, oftentimes is on one side of their head, although can be at both, uh, and this throbbing, pulsating sensation. And it's associated with other neurologic deficits, such as um, you know, uh, weakness or numbness or, um, or nausea or vomiting or light sensitivity or, um, uh, or noise sensitivity, or sometimes sensitivity to smell or really tenderness to the touch of, of your scalp. These symptoms are all added together to give you a condition we call migraine. And so you can imagine there's a lot of heterogeneity in 
people who might have those same symptoms. In fact, some people who have you know, a head injury could report very similar symptoms and don't have migraine at all. Um, people who have infection, viral encephalitis, sometimes experience a very similar type of head pain. Um, but it's not this episodic recurrent condition that, that upwards of nearly 20% of the population, um, at least in women, have. So, uh, so that's, it's a clearly a different biology, but maybe um, the, 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 it's triggering these events, but perhaps the downstream function of it is really quite similar um, between uh, different causes. Yes, I have seen it run in, in families. So obviously there is a strong genetic component. What's the incidence rate approximately? So it's a, um, it's a nearly, uh, it's, depending on the study, it can be up nearly 20% of the population. Usually high, wow. high teens is what's is what's cited, and and, and of them is... about you know somewhere around one percent, one to two percent of the population are what we call chronic migraine patients who have more than fifteen migraine days a month, and that's a you know that's a very disabling condition uh, has a huge toll on society, uh, both in terms of the lost productivity to the economy, but also in terms of these people's lives. I mean, they're really um, can be dramatically affected when half of the days of your of your life are spent in, in severe pain. One in five is is really, really, really high. Uh, and and the, so the, the percentage of that, that population seeking treatment, I would imagine, is a lot smaller, right? That's right. I'd say I, it's, it's hard to know exactly the, 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 the numbers. It depends on the regions and, and, and some cultural uh, differences as well. But um, a lot, a lot of patients are having what we call low-frequency migraine. So they can take a medicine. There are a variety of them that exist now, ranging from medicines like uh, Advil or, or, or um, uh, ibuprofen, all the way to some very new medications, um, which uh, you know, there's CGRP antagonists. Uh, these medications were all very effective in treating these, these individual attacks. And, and different patients need a different degree of, of intervention. Um, the patients that I think are most, most disabled, there is this kind of one to two percent of the population that have these migraine attacks very, very frequently, um, and uh, and so those are the ones that typically show up to a, a tertiary headache care um, center, and and often we try many, many different treatments for them. Yeah, and, and this is what I, I was just going to say. This is you know for me one of the the huge goals of, of, of my research is to try to not only identify better therapeutics. But also figure out when. I mean, right now, when when I see you know ten or twenty people in a day, which which patients should be on which treatment? And the way we currently make these decisions are by asking people which side effects they prefer the best. And that's you know if you think about it, very very archaic in terms of our our, our approach, given the fact we can now sequence your entire genome in a day and tell you which cancer therapeutics based on the the, the sequence of your tumor. Um, and then, you know, that's just happening in the hall across the way from me. And for me, I'm asking people, would you rather be asleep all day or would you rather not be able to find words in the morning? You know, I, these are, <laughs> this is how I make my decisions and I feel very behind the times. So, um, so one of the things we're really trying to do is figure out, is there any way we can understand a treatment response um, in patients, uh, you know, based on the genetic information or other, or other biomarkers? Yeah, uh, just very, very quickly, uh, re regular painkillers, uh, do they help here? Do, do people self-treat? 
I'm just going back to that 20% incidence rate. That seems really high. Yeah, I, I, most people try um, try many treatments before coming to see a physician. Usually, over-the-counter um, medicines like ibuprofen or or Excedrin, um, which includes a little bit of caffeine, are the typical first-line treatments that people can um, will try, and and oftentimes are are effective to some degree. Um, you know, it just, it just depends on the severity of, of the migraine attacks, and oftentimes this will change throughout an individual's uh, life's life. And so yeah. it, at that point, you know, sometimes people will need to, to seek care at one stage in their life and, and otherwise are completely fine. Hmm. Was there any connection um, between this and the opioid um, issue we ran into? Um, so there is a relationship. Uh, it, it turns out that for a variety of reasons, opioids have been tried uh, in, in for treating migraine. And, and quite frankly, they're not that effective. Um, but I think a lot of physicians um, who you know, didn't really under, keep up with the, with the headache literature would try it just because people were in pain. And it certainly does make you feel better in the short term. The challenge is, is that chronic opioid use, especially for headache, isn't very effective for long term and can actually increase the, the likelihood of having having more more severe headaches down the, down the road. It's a condition that we kind of term medication overuse headache, which has really classically been um, associated with, with chronic opioid or barbiturate use. Um, mm. the, some people have argued that perhaps this condition exists for other um, uh, pain relievers as well, um, such as ibuprofen. I think the data for that is a little bit less strong, um, but, but certainly for the opioids, uh, there's a pretty good consensus that this can actually worsen your headache if you use this <laughs> regularly. And so going back to the paper, so, so you're looking at 54 migraine-associated genes, and they're all over the place. Uh, so, so what did you find from the study? Yeah, and so what, uh, maybe just taking a, a couple of steps back, you know, what we were, look, what we were out, out looking for was where, and is there any, let me, let me all just restate this, there's a major debate that we have at all of our national conferences and international conferences, and that is, is migraine in the central nervous system or the peripheral nervous system? And there are some different camps in our, in our, in our field, and, and people are, are constantly arguing and providing support for one versus the other. And I think right now there's, there's reasonable good support that, that both are involved, you know, and, and no one knows where it starts. So we were thinking that if we could take people's genetic information, maybe we could learn something about you know, what's really the proximal uh, trigger for this. And it turns out that, that when we look at the genes that are associated with migraine, they are, as you said, kind of all over the place. Um, there are, they're expressed in blood, blood cells and the, uh, they're expressed in peripheral neurons that are expressed in, cent they're expressed in central neurons. And so um, the answer to that question did not uh, solve <laughs> this age old debate, um, and, but perhaps provided some support that uh, people that, that maybe both camps are right, and and I think that uh, maybe different individuals have susceptibility to migraine because different parts of this pathway um, are affected. So maybe some people have neurons in the central nervous system that are hyperactive that increase their likelihood for um, for triggering a migraine attack, um, and other people may not have anything wrong with their their excitability of their central nervous system, but their pain neurons in, in their face and, and around their head are just really easy to get kind of stimulated. They're, they get activated at a much lo, um, lower threshold than someone else. 
And so they might experience the pain associated with migraine much, uh, much more easily. And so I think that, mm. that that's the way I'm starting to conceptualize this. And the next real step is to try to understand how these individual variants uh, that have been associated with migraine actually cause dysfunction in the, in the cell types in which they're expressed. Yeah, um, would, would it be correct, Will, to, to think about migraine as sort of a, a diverse set of um, diseases that, that all have some sort of symptoms? So we, we are we're using symptoms as a diagnosis, but as, as you say, it could originate from many, many different parts of the body, right? So are we calling migraine sort of a bucket of different diseases? I think, I think that almost certainly there are different categories of migraine within this um, kind of broad stroke diagnosis for sure. Um, the question is, what is the most meaningful way to separate people out? And right now, you know, if you respond to the medications we use to treat migraine, such as sumatriptan or with some of these new CGRP antagonists, you know, we we're comfortable with, with calling that migraine. Um, but for people who don't respond, you know, there may, there, there's a real value to, to separating people out to the medications that they are most likely to respond to. And I think that's, um, that's, that's kind of the, the next step here is to figure out who's going to respond to which medication first. And I should just kind of uh, take a step back and say, when people have chronic migraine in more than 15 days of this a month, we often have to start out with one medication and then try another and then try another. And this can go on for months or even years of trial and error of different medications. And, and I think that the real value would be if we could predict based on what type of migraine a person has, which medication they're most likely to get benefit from, that's where the real value comes in in separating people based on the subtype of, of, of their migraine. Yeah. You, have, um, you have another study, uh, Erunumab, uh, which, is, which is a therapeutic use for treatment of migraine, CGRP receptor monoclonal antibody. You say it's for preventative treatment of migraine, but it has some uh, severe adverse effects. Uh, you want to talk a bit about, um, and you're using um, so some some way to predict who might have an adverse event, right? So, what, well, one of the things that's been a huge breakthrough in um, in, in our field and in, in headache and in migraine medicine over the past, really just the last past few years, um, has been the development of these new medications that target a molecule called CGRP, and CGRP is um, a, a peptide or um, calcitonin gene-related peptide that is uh, secreted by some of the pain neurons in your head and around your uh, in your body as well. And this peptide can create kind of a, a, an inflammatory response, so to speak, inside, uh, in a, inside your blood vessels and around your head, and, and it can also signal to other neurons in your head, uh, in, in your brain. And What's been found is that when people have a migraine attack, this peptide gets released more um, more frequently. And if you inhibit this peptide, it reduces the severity of, of migraine-related pain. And, and so this work actually was recently just awarded the, the Brain Prize, uh, which is a really exciting uh, thing for the field. And, um, and uh, the investigators who, who made these major seminal discoveries uh, received this. And... Um, and we now have drugs to treat, uh, to, to block this pathway, both 
um, monoclonal antibodies that just sequester all of the CGRP in your blood, um, or monoclonal antibodies that bind to the receptor and prevent it from being activated. And, um, and then now there's even more recently uh, small molecule antagonists that block the receptors directly. And so these, this new kind of uh, this new tool in our toolbox has actually been, been really effective for a lot of patients. Um, but one of the complications is that uh, the, the CGRP uh, peptide is not unique for the pain system. This is also used as evolution tends to do, repurposes molecules uh, for different systems in your body. And, and one of the questions we asked was, can you use some of these new technologies that are available? Um, by that I refer to single cell genomics to predict where uh, the CGRP um, peptides are likely to be acting and if, therefore might be able to predict some of the off-target effects. And so we went through some um, databases that we and others have generated and found that perhaps the most highestly, the, the part of the body that tends to express CGRP, the highest, at least in the data sets that we have, are actually enteric neurons, meaning that these are neurons that promote peristalsis in your gut um, and need to help kind of digest your food. Yeah. Um, and this, led us, I think, in early 2018 to propose that um, that maybe maybe constipation is going to be a major problem with these medications. Surprisingly, the clinical trials largely, well, there was a small circle on a couple of them. Um, the major medical clinical trial for arenamab, which is one of these CGRP uh, monoclonal antibodies, um, didn't really show a statistically significant signal for, for constipation in these mm. trials. And so we were surprised by that, as I think many of us are still are, that that didn't show up. Um, and uh, and given there are experience in the real world now, I mean, this is one of the most common uh, complaints by patients who are taking these medications. They're, I should just say they're rarely limiting in treatment. Sometimes they are, but but most people are able to take you know to take medic to take over the counter supplements to to prevent this from being a, a, a major problem. But in rare cases, it can cause uh, complete you know, complete um, aliases and, and, and or, or places where you cannot pass stool. Um, and uh, and that's, a, that's a real medical emergency. So um, this has not been something that has really prevented the use of these medications, and it's very, very rare, but uh, it is something that, uh, that we didn't really detect during the clinical trials and something that's kind of come out of afterwards. And so I think the real point of that, that study was just to highlight that we, many of these things can be predicted ahead of time by, um, by some of these new single cell genomic technologies that, that, that we use. And so, so practically, uh, Bill, how will it work? So you, you will, you'll take a blood test or something and it will tell you, you know, some, some sort of probability that you might have a serious side effect like so constipation. can't yet predict who's going to have the side effect and who isn't. What we're actually proposing in that study was that these uh, these data sets that have been generated both in, in animal models and also now more increasingly in human um, in tissue human tissues, we can use these data sets that are that have that are being generated to predict where very targeted therapies will act. So it's more of use, I think, in a very early stage of clinical develop of clinical uh, of new therapy developments to. Think about what kind of side effects to um, to to test for, and I think it's something that will increasingly become uh, standard both at pharmaceutical companies and also perhaps by the FDA uh, in requiring people to uh, think about 
potential toxicology and, uh, and, and other off-target effects. Yeah, so I, I guess there's some reporting bias in the clinical trials. So if you have some expectation of certain type of side effects during trial, uh, you can look for them. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think you know one part of it is the is the bias from from the patient, but you know it's placebo responses as well. But I think from the standpoint of just uh, understanding the safety of of a new molecule, uh, I think, and especially as we become more and more targeted in these therapies, I think these data sets will allow us to. To, to provide safer treatments, or at least more uh, rational um, characterizations of these in, in clinical trials. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to finish up with your most recent paper, Transcriptional Reprogramming of Distinct Peripheral Sensory Neuron Subtypes After Axonal Injury. Um, so so the, the injury to axons um, result in uh, migraine so, type issues? Not exactly. Uh, so this work is is a little bit um, tangential to, to my work in, in, in migraine. The reason why um, I'm working in this space is because, well, for two reasons. One is because axonal injury is a very common cause of pain. So you think about post-operative pain or, or post-traumatic pain. This is um, largely driven by, by axonal injury or inflammation in a particular area. Um, and so when we're thinking about developing new pain therapeutics, uh, for us, it was a very important model to use to, to try to identify new, new pain targets. And, and so when, when we think about pain targets that work um, peripherally after, let's say, an injury to your leg, um, there's a chance if that molecule is also expressed in the neurons in your head, so this is the trigeminal system, as we call it, that the, the pain, the new pain target might actually work for both peripheral and, um, and head pain. So that's kind of the, the link between the, the, the two areas of my research. Um, and so really I'm, tar I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on trying to understand new pain, pain targets. So, uh, so what exactly are axons? So axons are the parts of a, of a neuron that, um, that transmit the action potential. So when you think, when you hear, neuro, when you hear about neurons firing, so to speak, what's happening is actually there's an electrical signal that's being carried from one part of the cell down a long shaft, so to speak, uh, that connects very near another cell. And that's how the information is processed. Um, there's this electrical signal that goes down the axon, it results in the release of neurotransmitters at the end of that axon terminal that then get perceived by the neighboring cell. And that's how, that's how the, the, the electricity, so to speak, is communicated from one place in the brain or, or, or peripheral nervous system to another. And uh, I might not have understood this well. So, so how do they get injured? Well, when you think about um, any time you, you hit your finger with a hammer or cut yourself with a knife, the axons that are, are part of your peripheral are, are buried inside of your skin um, that detect yeah. all these you know, light touch or temperature or cold or any of these, these senses that you have, um, when you when you damage your tissue, the very ends of those axons actually get damaged themselves. And so that, that injury sends a bunch of um, molecular signals back to your, um, well, first to your spinal cord and then to your brain uh, that there's been damage that occurs and that lets you to know to protect that limb or finger or whatever it is that got injured from from the environment so that it can heal um, so there's an obvious very important 
evolutionary need for pain. Um, but in some cases, which is really where I come in, from a clinical standpoint, the pain is carried on for a long period of time after uh, any type of, of, of injury. Um, or in head pain, there's really no injury. It's just the system's getting activated pathologically. And so there's a huge amount of research in, in my group and in other places as well is really aimed at trying to understand how to turn these kind of crazy neurons off so that in patients who don't uh, have you know, an active injury going on, um, we can help them have relief and live normal lives. So some sort of trauma to some part of the body uh, results in um, uh, some, some sort of injury uh, in the axonal level and even after the body has healed, if I understand this correctly, well, uh, the, the the neurons are still sort of still firing, and you exactly. still have so, pain. So it depends. So this, this is a kind of an important area in in the field. For instance, if you what we see in, in many patients, they'll go in for some surgical procedure, either a knee repair or or you know gallbladder removal, something like that. In most people, you know, this involves an incision. And that incision will occur and they'll be sewn up by the surgeon. And then a few weeks later, there's no pain, all the inflammation is gone, and everyone's back to normal. But in a small set of patients, for some reason, and we don't understand the mechanisms of this, those, those neurons do not, even though the skin heals up and everything looks normal, those neurons don't go back to normal. They continue to fire or they send signals into the central nervous system that makes it, it, it perceive the signals differently. Um, this is a process that. Um, is called central sens sensitization, where you become sensitized to otherwise innocuous stimuli when you didn't, uh, just because of some kind of rewiring that goes on, um, or not so much rewiring, but kind of re, uh, the, the different thresholds are set in, in the way a neuron fires um, that makes it fire more easily the next time it, it gets activated. And, uh, and so this, this problem is, is something that we're trying to understand, and if we could understand that, you know, I think that would significantly help situations like this opioid crisis that's going on where we're having to give these patients you know, really high doses of medication to, to, to provide a functional life. Yeah. It does, does, does it have to be a sort of a severe trauma for this, it to, does not, this to happen? Um, it does not need to be severe. And, and that's another kind of mysterious uh, mysterious thing here. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by severe, but I mean, you don't have to be in a major car accident. It does require injury to the, to hmm. the, to the, to the limb um, or to the head or wherever, whatever system you're talking about, but it, um, you know, a major, major injury. And so going back to the, to the paper, uh, so transcription, uh, you say our findings suggest that transcription factors induced early after peripheral nerve injury confer the cellular plasticity required for sensory neurons to transform into a regenerative state. Um, so, so, so could you explain that a bit? Um, so what are transcription, so transcription factors? Transcription factors are proteins that are in uh, the nucleus of a cell that tell the cell when to turn on and, to, and how much to turn on a given gene. And so they're kind of the master regulators of gene expression and those genes are what kind of make the, 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 make the RNA, which then makes the proteins, which are the building blocks of, of, of your cell. And, and so they kind of, they, they set the thresholds uh, and, and the expression levels for all of these genes and proteins. 
one of the things that we really wanted to understand was we made this kind of bizarre observation that after uh, sensory neurons are, are, are damaged, their gene expression profiles dramatically change. And it turns out that these, mm-hmm. these genes that are turned on are important to uh, regenerate the, the axon that got damaged. And, and so we've, we've, we spent a lot of time trying to understand this process in, in exquisite detail and within different cell types within the sensory neurons, there are many different types. Some detect touch, some detect cold, some detect heat. Um, and so we were able to map out the responses in each of these cell types. Um, they turn out to be remarkably similar, but it's still, in that, and from a therapeutic standpoint, that actually yeah. might be really, uh, really useful. Um, and we think that in some patients, especially if you think about it, like phantom limb pain where, where a leg is amputated, um, the, the nerves don't aren't able to regenerate properly because they don't have their end organ to, 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 to grow back into. And, and so we think that by better understanding the, the, these, these mechanisms that drive regeneration of the axon, we can, in some cases, actually prevent these cells from being as hyperactive and, and angry, so to speak, after um, surgical procedures. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like, I, I hate to devaluate, but just like an electronic equipment, given the wrong um, wrong voltage, stays on even after you yeah, turn it, it off. It, it seems like uh, the brain is, is on. You just have to uh, sort of well, reset right. it, it somehow, right? We try to do just that. In many of these patients, unfortunately, unlike in electronics, you can't turn it off for a very long period of time. But we... we we, um, we do actually administer anesthetics to the peripheral nerve to try to essentially, we do just like you would with your phone, it's acting weird, you turn it off and then turn it back on and see if it gets back to normal. And, and that's exactly the basis of, 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 of nerve blocks where you'll go to the doctor and they'll inject the anesthetic into your leg and hope that the nerve comes back normal. It does relieve the pain, but oftentimes it comes back um, you know, after days, weeks, months and, and still at a, at a very high level. So um, one of the major outstanding kind of holy grails of pain medicine is to develop tools that will allow us to um, keep these neurons quiet for longer periods of time without causing complete anesthesia, right? Because if you imagine lidocaine um, in your leg, you, don't, you can't feel anything that you've, you've, that's, that's been touched. Or when the dentist puts Novocaine in, in your tooth, you, know, you can't even, you Bite your, you can bite your tongue. You know it's dangerous to not be able to feel. And so, what we're, we and, and many other groups are trying to do is develop um, pain medicines that will turn these nerves off, but not lose the sensation of touch, so that you can safely anesthetize these pain neurons without affecting the other ones. Hmm. I don't know what the right term would be, well, but this sort of perpetual neuronal activation uh, in this case uh, because of a physical injury uh, do you think things like this happen in more um, you know psychological things like PTSD it's a different um, it's a different mechanism so in in what would be kind of sense so there's a couple of other I think your question has a few questions buried in it um, with the perception of pain obviously the perception of pain occurs in your brain this is not something that is uh, um, driven just by the sensory neurons in your hand. 
Um, in fact, there are patients who have strokes that are in the brain, don't even involve the, the, the sensory neurons in their hands and, and feet and, and face, uh, who have chronic, really debilitating pain because it affects the pain pathways in your brain. And so there's clearly neural circuitry in your brain that mediates the, um, the sensation of pain. And, and so in more psychological or what's classically called psychological conditions like PTSD or, or even depression, that are, or there's very high comorbidity with, with heightened pain or reports of pain, there may very well be circuit level changes that occur in these pain circuits in your brain that, uh, that, that make you more sensitive yeah. to the perception of pain, even though the stimulus was uh, otherwise you know, the same as it was, let's say, before that, that condition developed. Um, and so I, I think absolutely there's, a, there's an overlap, but perhaps at a different level um, than what I'm talking about with the axons that get injured by a trauma. Yeah, I mean, it would be fascinating if, if you know, if some sort of therapeutic approaches are overlapping yeah, between mean, I, the two. I think with, with this more central, uh, these, these circuitry, yeah. the circuitry involved in pain that's, that's, that's in your brain, there are uh, you know, a large number of, of investigators that are very interested in transcranial magnetic stimulation where they can actually activate various regions of your brain with a magnet and try to help reduce the sensation of those pains. And, and I think that's, that's work that's really kind of in the beginning days. And I think as those tools become more targeted and more, um, more powerful, uh, we'll be able to modify some of these circuits uh, directly. We certainly can in animals. Uh, there's really great work that was done by uh, a, an investigator at Penn named Greg Porter, where he's able to uh, control how an animal perceives pain without actually, you know, by turning on or off certain neurons in the brain. Um, and it's actually not just perceiving pain, but just how much they care about the pain. Uh, it's really interesting, interesting work where they can turn those cells off and give the same mouse the same stimulus and it doesn't care about the pain. And then a few minutes later, turn those neurons back on and the animal is very affected by the pain. And so I think, um, you know, there's, there's really exciting work at the basic animal level going on um, in that area right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're still a little ways away before clinical translation of that, of that work. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, Will, um, I know that your lab is doing a lot of work in this area. So if you look forward five, 10 years, um, where do you think uh, we are most likely to make uh, significant well, discoveries think, and improvements? You know, with, with regard to um, migraine, I think there's um, some really exciting new work that's helping us understand that you know migraine likely begins in uh, the hypothalamus, which is an important kind of hormonal regulatory part of your brain. And I think that there's some really exciting work that's uh, that's coming out uh, looking at. Uh, the role of hypothalamus and perhaps some of the, the, the hormones that are regulated by the hypothalamus and migraine. Um, I also think that um, you know, there are a variety of, of, there's a large number of studies that are coming out with regard to the genetics of migraine that I think will help point new, uh, point us towards new directions that we can previously maybe overlooked or, or not known about. Um, and, and I think from the, you know, from the perspective of pain, the there's the, the new single cell genomic technologies that we have that have kind of enabled us to, for the first time, learn what molecules are expressed in the neurons that transmit pain versus other neurons will really lead to an explosion of new tools and, and yeah. potentially therapeutics 
that will allow us to very selectively modify these cells without affecting other cells, without, without affecting other senses. And, and I think that I would look for those things in a few years and we'll, we can touch back again then and hopefully we'll have at least a few of them. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th that is the, that is the idea, right? So sort of understanding at the molecular level, what, what happens. Um, I think we are getting uh, maybe more and more information of the genetics aspect of it, but how the how the machine works mechanistically is still still yeah, not I think well understood. Those, those gaps. I mean, I, I, you know, I think because we cannot go inside people's brains uh, on an individual level and, and and assay specific neurons, you know, I think we really are limited to the things we can ask people about with words with with imaging of their brains during various tasks and their genes. And we can, those are the things we can actually directly test in a given individual. And so we have to use uh, work in other organisms to piece those pieces together. So um, that, that's, that's where we are. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of really exciting work going on now, thanks to advances in optogenetics that allow us to turn certain neurons on and off uh, very rapidly, and I think we'll be able to understand these circuits. It's just, uh, it's just a matter of, of time. Right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Will. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.